CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the listeners of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. We have a great show for you today. The Saturday edition always is a little bit different. We like to talk a little bit about history and a little bit about the modern world. Today, we're going to look at some of the misconceptions of World War II and then maybe some recent misconceptions. But first, let's have a word from our sponsor. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back. And Victor, how are you doing today? Very good, Sammy. Very good. Very well, I should say. Sorry. Awesome. Well, hopefully you'll get your rain in California and things are going pretty well. Do you ever get over to the coast? I was at Palo Alto, hard at work at my day job, and I got a good view of California driving across the west side and my four-hour trek. And that was depressing given the infrastructure and the poor roads. And then I did cross the Stonehenge high-speed rail route again. Every time I cross it, it's very sad. Okay. I didn't know I was going to bring out Eeyore this morning. So maybe we better move on a little bit. I think you should move on. (laughs) Okay. I'd like to remind everybody that Victor is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Victor, we were talking on the Friday edition about your World War II book, and I thought we really didn't have enough time. It's a wonderful book. It's absolutely chock full of facts and research and evidence. And I know that you do about six or seven things new or study and come to conclusions of about six or seven new things that often are misconceptions of in history. And I wanted to, to see if we could talk about a few of those things. And the first one is that Britain was the weak link in World War II, or that Britain really didn't perform up to the standard, and World War II was won by the United States and the Soviet Union collectively on both sides. Could you address that for us? Yeah, you know, this was very popular in Britain because that was a theme throughout the book that because of, I guess, because of GDP or population, Soviet Union had about 180 million. We had about 140. Britain was about 40, 43 million. But that was a misconception for a lot of reasons. First of all, Britain was the only of the three, only power of the three, the main, the big three, the Soviet Union, us, and Britain that started the first day of the war. When Hitler went in on September 1st, they declared war on September 2nd. And they were the only power to last the entire war. So when we, September 
1945, when the formal Pacific Theater ended, they were there. So we came in late. Obviously, we had reasons for that. In December of 1941, the Soviet Union was an ally, an ally, basically de facto under the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact until June 22nd, 1941, but not Britain. And they were the only power, think about this, Sammy, they were the only power who went to war that was not attacked by the Third Reich. In other words, they went for the principle of the sovereignty of Poland. It was a principle for them. And they fought the entire six years. That's underappreciated. The second thing, when we say Britain, that's a construct. What we're talking about is the British Empire. At that time, that constituted Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and India, South Africa. And so what that meant was in terms of oil or natural resources or production, because of American-Canadian joint ventures, say in trucks, Canada supplied more wheeled vehicles to the Allied effort and more ships than did Hitler to the Axis effort. People forget that. So it was drawing on a huge empire and a huge population. And then there was British technology. If you think very quickly, if you go through all of the main developments, say in cryptology, or I could call it cyber warfare, it's not cyber, but I'm talking about breaking codes, the ultra secret, getting the fourth wheel on the Enigma machine, sonar, sonar, all of those ASDEC, all of those inventions were British. Even the great innovations in radar were British. And when the war started, Britain had the largest Navy, larger than our Navy. That only lasted for a year and a half, but the British Navy was everywhere. And it fought a two-front war. It was, I mean, everybody says you can never win a two-front war. That's what destroyed Hitler. Hello, when Hitler went into Russia, he didn't have a two-front war. The war was inert. All there was left was Britain, and it was static. North Africa was contained. But when Britain went to war, it immediately fought the Nazis in North Africa, and they were trying to bomb them over the continent. And then the Pacific War started, and they went into Burma to protect India, et cetera, et cetera. We did, and Britain did. So, And then finally, under terms of production, it simply outproduced itself, itself, maybe not in artillery and tank production, but in terms of airframes. During the Blitz, when it was being bombed, it produced more Spitfire airframes than the British, than the Germans did with all of occupied Europe under its heel than they did BF-109. So it's a pretty amazing achievement. And then we also got the leadership of Winston Churchill, which was an asset as well. You mentioned the Enigma machine, and if it's not too much of a digression, I wanted to ask a question about that, that the British were able to apprehend an Enigma machine early on in the war, right? And then it was very useful. I, I was reading a book by Martin Gilbert, The Second World War. Yes. And I noticed that was one thing I had a very big impression of in the beginning of the book, that that Enigma machine was very important early on in the war. Is that true? Is It was because the Poles were the people who snuck out an Enigma machine. There were three wheels. Oh. And until that fourth wheel was added, for example, when the British were on, on some of their worst moments of the U-boat war, they were getting information on everything from how many U-boats were being produced, how many troops were being diverted to the Eastern Front after June of 41, and actually where the wolf packs were going to assemble. 
but there were a couple things. Remember, for a while, everything went blank because they they made a more sophisticated fourth wheel. They had little spinning wheels that were had, that had, were essential to the coat decoding oh. process. And then they found a submarine and they got the fourth wheel. But at the same time, they were doing this. Remember, they cracked the British naval codes in Egypt. The Germans did. So they mm. for about oh, a few months they had an advantage, and then it was lost forever. And then the question was. Do you tip off the Germans by doing it? Should you tell everybody in Coventry, England to get out of Coventry, England and evacuate the city because they were going to firebomb it the next 24 hours? They didn't do that. I think they should have, but they didn't and because they wanted to protect that information. So on D-Day, they knew the size of the German forces and where they were arrayed, except it was a very valuable. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on then. Speaking of that. Africa area. And I, I think we're at least I'm most aware of the first introduction of the Sherman tank. Another misconception is that the Sherman tank was a death trap. What are your thoughts on that? Well, when I started writing the Second World Wars, I had an uncle that was in the Third Army, and that was the perception of the soldiers themselves. Because on rare occasions, when the Americans really got into Europe, I mean, they had Lee and Stewart tanks that weren't that good in North Africa. And then they got the Sherman at the end. We gave 200 Sherman tanks to the British at, right before El Alamein. They were very good. The problem was that we were not a continental power. So we're over here in North America with friendly Canadians and friendly Mexico with no threat of an invasion on by land. And we didn't really, we, we stressed air power and naval power. That was what was going to be preemptive and preemptive war. So we didn't really catch up on tanks. So when the war started, we really were way behind. And then we decided to make this super tank, the Sherman. And it had a very easily, you know, there were American automotive companies outsourced it, GM, et cetera, Chrysler. It had a very reliable power plant. It had a very easily maintained transmission. Up to the time of 1942, November, December, it had about two to three inches of armor. It was comparable to the German Mark III, Mark IV maybe, and better than the Mark III. And so for a brief window, it was spirit. But we didn't know what was going on with the Soviets and the Germans. We didn't understand the T-34, which was a diesel engine, lightweight aluminum engine, sloped armor, high-powered 76 millimeters. So we had a short-barreled 75 millimeter, and it was really good in North Africa. And then guess what? In this tit-for-tat challenge and response, Soviet-German warfare tank engineering blew up. I mean, it just went crazy. So all of a sudden, you had to have a 76 millimeter high long-barreled gun. There was no more, you know, 37 millimeter, 50 millimeter, and the Sherman 75, which had been superior, short barrel, but everybody else had a 50 millimeter and 37. And then you started getting three and four inches of armor. And then when you look at the Panther, Tiger came out before the Panther, but 60 tons and up to 70 with the King Tiger. And then when you look at the Panther, which supposedly was the best tank of the war because it had four inches of armor and it had a high powered 76 long barreled. And then the Tiger had the 88 flak gun on it. So everybody says, when you saw a Panther, but especially a Tiger in Normandy or as you got near the German border, they were going to blow you to pieces and you couldn't do anything about it. And that's true. Except if you look at production of American Shermans, it was five or six to one. 
they only made 600 king tigers and about 1500 tigers and i don't know how many it was four or five thousand but you know they we finally produced 30 40 depending on how we define them 45,000 shermans i think they were the most popular tank except for the t-34 and remember another thing we had to transport tanks not by rail so they had to be light enough for a crane to put them on a ship and not too big. So 30 tons was maximum. That was the time we built them. They were sort of, that was the maximum of any tank. But when these tanks started getting to 45 tons or 50 tons and with these huge guns, we didn't really understand what was going on in the Eastern Front. So when we went into Normandy and Italy, if you were an American tank crew and you were in a Sherman in late 1944, Nine times out of 10, you were encountering infantry and light armed vehicles. But if you had the misfortune of bumping into a tiger or a panther, they were going to blow you apart. But that being said, I'm quoting from memory, as I remember, a lot of sophisticated studies showed that when a Sherman went up, it was not a Ronson lighter, like everybody said. In other words, there was a trap door and later models at the bottom of the Sherman. And three out of five crew members of every destroyed Sherman survived. Yeah. And the main thing was in tank warfare, what was the number of hours that a tank can operate vis-a-vis the number of hours it's downtime for maintenance? The Sherman was 10 to 1. The Panther was about 2 to 1. So in other words, if you were in a Panther, the tracks the transmission, it was so finely calibrated, it couldn't stand up to the conditions of war. They had to send the transmission on a rail back to the plant in Germany. And what Patton said won the war for Americans, where Americans came out of the depression. They had no money. Everybody got a used car. They were shade tree mechanics. So in his third army, when the Sherman went down, these American kids could take out that transmission in five or six hours and they brought spare transmissions, but they were, they were doing, you know, putting new heads on the train. Americans were. So that Sherman was always in use and a tiger and um, Panther were always having maintenance problems. And finally, the, just to sum up when the war started to be ending, the, the T-34 was sort of the future. It was a diesel engine and diesel doesn't ignite like gas. It had a very powerful upgraded 76 millimeter. And finally, the advanced post 34s had 88 millimeters, sloped armor, wide tracks, low profile. The Sherman idea of high profile, narrow tracks, roomy interior, underpowered gun was not it. I will say in finishing that the British, we're talking about the British Sammy, and they did a lot of other things I didn't mention. One of the things is they came up with the idea of putting a what they called a 17-pounder, and that was a huge, long-barreled gun with a little tripod. It was so long, and they call on a Sherman because the Sherman was so reliable, and it had a range comparable or exceeding the Panthers, and they would put a high-velocity anti-armor round in that sable round or something they could go through a panther or tiger and it had the range so one out of every five shermans in france was a firefly they called them the british ran Mm -hmm. and they blew apart most of the they blew apart most of the famous german tank commanders from the eastern front that had been transferred and they weren't very comfortable but they when you put that gun on a sherman and even when we ended the war we came up with something called the pershing we tried to say well we're going to 
adopt these German and Russian ideas. And the British had some good ideas. We made a 90 millimeter gun, lower profile. But you know what? When we got to Korea five years later, a lot of people said, you know what? The Pershing's too heavy. It's underpowered. It's not as reliable. Let's go get an upgraded Sherman. And they used a lot of Shermans in World War II, uh, in the Korean War. Korean, so yeah. under underappreciated. Yeah, definitely. So on to my next question then, and this is the big one, that it is always bad to have to fight a two-front war. And so I would like to listen to you on the American addressing a war on two fronts in this war, in World War II, in the wars of World War II. Well, we say it's bad to fight a two-front war because of the German experience. It used to be that with the formation of Germany in 1870, 71, after the Franco-Prussian War, they had what they called the central location. And they had the sophisticated rail network so they could send troops to one side or the other from all the way to what would become Poland to France in a matter of hours. So everybody said that was in bang. Then they went to war in World War One, And guess what? They took on two armies. But they, actually, they won the Eastern Front. They won it. So by November of 1917, and then formally in February of 1918, they defeated what would then Bolshevik Russia. Why they didn't win the Western Front were two things. The Americans were coming in at 10,000 troops a day, and they had to win quickly, and they were greedy, and they used about 700,000 occupation troops. Had they just shut down the Eastern Front that they won and sent another million, maybe, all the way over, they would probably would have won the Western Front. In World War II, Hitler was so traumatized by that experience that he promised his generals he would not have a two-front war. So he he went to war because of the Molotov-Ribbentrop track of August 23rd, 1939. So he was just going to fight Poland with no Western group because of he said he was not interested in replaying World War I. So then when he won Poland, he had signed the pact with Russia. They split up Poland. He went west, and he had won everything in the west except Britain. He tried to bomb it. Operation Sea Lion would never work. He didn't have naval superiority. And guess what? He said to his generals, there isn't a two-front war anymore. Europe is all occupied, and Britain is inert, and America is not in the war. So we'll go into Russia. And then if we get into Russia, that will stop Britain. What a weird logic. You're going to win World War II by taking on a huge new enemy to defeat an enemy that you can't defeat in the West, Britain. So that was the idea. And then, you know, what happened? He got bogged down in Russia and he didn't conclude that theater. And then he didn't know what was going to happen with Pearl Harbor. He declared war on us and bang, he had the Soviet Union on one side and America in North Africa, Italy on the other. However, the United States and Britain fought two front wars. Why do they do that? You can fight a two front war if you have two assets, three assets, a huge productive economy, a sophisticated air arm and logistical transport and a blue water Navy. The only two countries in World War II that did were Britain and the United States, and they were the only two countries that fought successfully on a two-front war. We also have the idea that the Pacific theater was shorted of materiel and men in World War II, and is that true? Well, you know, it was a big discussion after Pearl Harbor. Everybody said, why are we going to preserve the British Empire, or why are we going to worry about continental Europe? Because Hitler has not attacked us. 
but Japan has. So let's go finish the people who are at war with us. And then that sort of crumbled from December 7th to 11th because Hitler declared war on us for a variety of reasons. U-boat concerns. He wanted to attack the West Coast. He had a very faulty idea of American productive. I can't get into it. But my point is, at that point, then we were at war with both Italy and Germany, the whole Axis powers. Okay, so what do you do? Well, England was threatened and we had to get out of, to get rid of Hitler, we got to go in there and maybe we can go into Italy, maybe we can go into France, but it was the idea, Roosevelt said, Europe first, Pacific second. They had a very unrealistic estimate of Japanese power. They didn't know anything about Japanese destroyer designs, the Long Tong torpedo, Japanese naval carrier excellence, and they didn't really understand that. And it was a much better Navy than Hitler's. They were in a better strategic position than Hitler. So we divided it up and everybody said, well, we shorted the Pacific. But the weird thing was that no one in their right mind thought that this economy that was 25% stagnant 1939. Remember the 38 recession got us back to 18% unemployment, so much for the New Deal. But it was underutilized. Within four years, the GDP by end of 1944 was larger than Germany's, Italy's, Britain's, and the Soviet's, and Japan's put together. And then we had this huge continent. So we had these West Coast ports and East Coast ports. And it made sense to just divide the country more or less in two and divide militarily. So what we did was all the Marine six divisions went to the Pacific. There were no Marines actually in combat of any number in Europe. And then we said, after the first few months, the carriers, we don't really need them. And the Medi- Britain has carriers. We'll go put all of the carrier forces in the Pacific where they can leapfrog to Tokyo. And the same thing was true of submarine warfare. We had some in Europe, but most of them were in the Pacific. And then we started using Oakland and Portland and Seattle for liberty ships and victory ships. And the population, I know I had a lot of relatives that were in the European theater, of course, but most of them were in Alaska or they were on bombers or they were in the Marine Corps. And so when we're here in California, in the Central Valley, when you talked about World War II, most of the people's family, people, members that were killed or wounded were killed by the Japanese. People forget that because that horrible Japanese internment, and I've written against it. They never found one Japanese American who had betrayed this country. But the anger that forced liberal Democrats, remember Earl Warren signed the order as attorney general and as as a uh, liberal, and then the FDR was liberal Democrat. But my point is, we were the proximate state, and we weren't really going to regret that mistake because California was at war mostly with Japan. And it was a brutal Pacific War. I mean, I know the Germans committed a lot of atrocities, especially at the Bulge and elsewhere. But against American flyers or British flyers, they did not behead them. Maybe civilians did once in a while. This is even after Dresden and Hamburg and all that stuff with the British. And they did the same and we did the same. But in the Pacific, if you were in a B-29 crew and you bailed out, there were some prisoners, but mostly you're going to die. And most Americans that went into a Japanese POW camp died. And if you yeah. look at, read about E.B. Sledge, the old breed about Okinawa, or read some accounts of Iwo Jima, 
it was a different type of war. It was no prisoners whatsoever. The Japanese did not surrender like the Germans did. So what I'm getting at, there were two different wars, but the United States was so big and had such productive capacity and had 140 million people. And it put, I think our listeners should remember this about that generation. We had 40 million people less than the Soviet Union. We put 12.1 million people in uniform. The Soviets put about 12.4 million. So as far as population size versus army size, it was just incredible. We mobilized the greatest number of people. We had the biggest dunk and we could fight two front wars. And as I said, we did not really, we said, oh, we're privileging. That's what Roosevelt said to Churchill. We're privileging you guys. We're going to go to, but in actual fact, if you look at the number that we deployed ships by tonnage, submarines, marine, it was not short in the Pacific. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned the New Deal and that getting out of the depression happened with the spending of World War II. So I would like to hold that thought with our audience as we take a moment for a word from our sponsor, and we'll come back with some modern misconceptions. So let's hear from our sponsors. Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower, lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not, you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful, it promises at your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back, Victor. So we're going to turn from World War II, and I want to ask about the modern printing to get out of a recession, that inflation, according to our current politicians, is all not all that bad. What are your thoughts? Well, remember, with Biden, you have to keep current. Inflation wasn't all that bad for the first year when it was really bad. Because as Jen Psaki said, oh, you know, it just means supply problems. Your Peloton didn't come in time. Oh, you know what? Workers' wages are going up. But now it's not funny because it's at 7.5 in January at an annualized rate. The consumer price index does not count fuel that's up about 40 to 45 percent and food that's up about 12 percent. 
So if you look, really look at the actual stuff of life, you know, housing, food, gas, it's up about eight or nine or 10%. And they know it. And so now the narrative is, Inflation is something that we're very worried about, and it's because of the supply chain and COVID. It's not because, i.e., they are borrowing $2 trillion last year, $2 trillion this year, after Trump primed the economy during COVID with a trillion and a half. And then the infrastructure thing, you know, build back better. And the infrastructure, they want build back better, it could be $5 trillion. So they have a new theory, modern monetary theory, that says if you print money and expand the money supply way over increases in both GDP and population, and you keep interest rates very low, what happens is that people get money in their hands directly from government subsidies and from an inflationary economy, wages go up and it erodes the power of capital. So if you're a listener out there and you have $50,000 of your life savings, you're getting zero interest. And now with inflation, you're getting minus seven interest. So you just do the math, you're losing three or $4,000, 300 a month on that $50,000 passport. And that is good because you're a privileged person and you're not a marginalized person who needs to get their hands on cash, easy money. So you're, being <laughs> you're being facetious. You're being facetious, of course. Uh, right? Well, according been, to the Biden I, administration, that's I've been good. <laughs> I've been talking to a lot of economists and I've been reading a lot about economists and modern modern monetary theory. And there's been a puff piece in the New York Times and they they love these new many of them are women, the economists. And they think, you know what, the old boy, Milton Friedman, monetarist. We don't need them anymore. We've got a new group of different types of people. So it's kind of the economic counterpart to critical race theory or critical legal theory. And again, it's a Marxist in, in its inspiration. And I think it's going to destroy the country. I really do. It, it just tells the middle class, you idiot, why are you thrifty? Oh, you play by the quote rules. Now you've got money saved up. And you're too stupid to go into the stock market or you're too stupid to flip houses like Elizabeth Warren. Is that it? And so, oh, you're just sitting on your little tiny pile. Well, guess what? The poor and the people less, they are going to need some money and we're going to spread the wealth. I'm quoting Barack Obama. So I, I don't want to be too facetious, but it's a bad idea. Inflation is, is not, you know, two or three percent. It's not a problem. But when you get up to seven and a half, it's a psychology I'm speaking to somebody who was destroyed farming by inflation because farmers take the hit first. And we were, I would, as I said, again, and again, people are sick of these stories, but every time I bought a bag of sulfur or, you know, I bought a can of Roundup or whatever it was, they had the price crossed out. And that minute sat in the warehouse for three months and then they had a higher price. And sometimes I got a sulfur bag that say $1.40, $1.60, $1.70 written on it. And you can never keep up. That's what it is now. I went to Walmart yesterday, and guess what? There were no stakes there, not one stake. And you're going to say, well, that was because they're being snapped up. No, because they're 40 or $50, and they've had a problem with people stealing them. And mm -hmm. it's kind of like when you go to the drugstore now, and your allergy medicine or whatever you have to have it locked up. Yeah. Now it's even toothpaste. Al Sharpton said the other day, well, you know, I mean, my toothpaste is locked up. 
Well, yeah, because not because it's dangerous, because they steal. It's easy to steal. Well, stakes are locked up or not. They don't appear. Yeah. Well, let's um, look at another one. Barack Obama, we have the popular conception that he was a moderate and a racial healer. What would you say to that? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Is that too much of, I don't know, too much of a joke, huh? Put it this way. Had Colin Powell or Condoleezza Rice been the first African-American president, we would not be in the fix that we are now. Not because they were less authentically black. They were more authentically black. Barack Obama was only half black. But because they were traditionalists, they believed in the redemptive powers of America, assimilation, integration, intermarriage, et cetera, et cetera. So Barack Obama was nursed by Mr. John Marshall Davis or Franklin, whatever his name was, the Marxist tutor that he went. He grew up on his crackpot grandfather's socialist ideas, his mother's socialist ideas. I'm not blaming him. I'm trying to contextualize why he was so radical. And then yeah. he was a he was a beneficiary of not just affirmative action, but wealth and affirmative action. The key to that guy was his grandmother. She was a hardworking woman. And she made from nothing, she went up and supported her lazy husband and her crazy daughter and Barack Obama and his sister as a bank vice president. Finally, I think a president. He went to prep school and then he went to Occidental and he didn't do very well. And we don't know what he did at Columbia because they won't release his transcript. We don't know what he did at Harvard Law. But put it this way, he said, I'm going to quote him. He said, my problem is I'm too lazy. What he meant by that was I have natural talent. And I don't have to use all of it. I can relax because people want to give me things. And he resented people who gave him things. He always did. No sooner than he got into the campaign and it was for my white liberal audiences, I'm going to be the great redemptive person that makes them feel good about a nice, as Joe Biden said, articulate and the first articulate and mainstream, clean black. And then Harry Reid said, another great liberal, said he's the first person who can talk like a Negro or talk non-Negro. He changes it. So that liberal, racist Democrat liked him. And he knew that. And so it was then it spread the money around. And then it was the Henry Louis Gates right out of the blocks. He said the police were racist, stereotyping Henry Louis Gates. Remember the beer summit? And then we got into punish your enemies at the polls. He told the Latinos. And then it was the son I never had look, would look like Trevon. And then he unleashed Eric Holder, who told us we were racist. And then there was the apology tour about the neo-colonialist, imperialist, white people. And that's what he did. And he got the rappers to the White House. I think one of their ankle bracelets went off. We had Lamar Kendrick with his kill the police line at the White House. So that was the narrative that he got edgier and edgier. And then we, we got Michelle, the, the great partner. She'd never been proud of America, she said. Downright mean country. And she was off to the races, too. And then they got Axelrod, got, you know, took her aside and said, listen, you always say that you're being stereotyped as an angry black. I'm just being facetious. But somebody like Axelrod did that. You're an angry black woman. And so you don't want to sound like an angry black woman because they're going to stereotype you as an angry black woman. I read her, Christopher Hitchens, the late, sent me her Princeton thesis, and I read it. I urge all you readers, I think you can find it online. It's incomprehensible, A, but it's 
arguments are preposterous, but they're racialized. So that's what he was. And I'll just finish by saying he had one contribution to race that really has got us in this bad idea. Before he was president, diversity was a arcane term in the university. It was affirmative action. And affirmative action had started with the historical racism of Jim Crow, 90% of the population at then 10% African-American. And what do you do about the black population that was denied freedom? So we're going to have repertory affirmative action. And then that was added to with the Hispanics. I don't, that was kind of a leap. And I, I don't think we should have done that, but we did it. And not so with Asians. So when I was involved in academia at the ground level in my late 20s, 30s, 40s, you would have people from India complain, people who were Japanese. They would say, we don't get affirmative action and we're not white. Well, he came in with this word diversity. He said, you know what? He stole it from Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition. That was a failure. But he said, it doesn't matter what your income is. It doesn't matter that my daughters are going to be multimillionaires. It doesn't matter that Oprah is a billionaire. If you're not white, you're diverse. And you know what? This new diversity is not 10% of the population. It's 30. And everybody, if you're from India and you're a multimillionaire family, it doesn't matter if you're an aristocratic investor from Bolivia, no problem. Trillier are. So it brought, if you're a wealthy South Korean uh, emigre heart surgeon, you are diverse and therefore you are a victim and therefore you have historical complaints against that truck driver who's making 29000 a year in Northern Illinois or Southern Ohio, whatever. And that's what he did. He destroyed the whole idea of class. So yeah. suddenly, suddenly in his bizarre world, if you were a poor working white guy in a forklift in Bakersfield, you had it made and LeBron and Eric Holder and the BLM architects and Oprah and, you know, Prince Harry, all, yeah. those, all those people were victims. And that's what he left us with no class considerations whatsoever, but a fixation on DNA. And you can see what happened. Everybody wanted to get in on it. So Elizabeth Warren was all of a sudden got her DNA and she had high cheekbones. Ward Churchill, <laughs> Rachel Dozo, Sean King. Everybody <laughs> thought, wow, if it's not being black, it's just not being white. And I'm going to say I'm not white. And why not? If you can construct your gender, why don't you construct your race? Wasn't it Donald Trump that got Elizabeth Warren to do that uh, genetic testing for us? And then she's like 1,000th Native American or well, something. A little, it's a little worse than that, Sammy. It's a little worse. She not only was, I don't know, some of the Let, smallest possible inkling of most Americans had more Native American blood than she did. But then she <laughs> bragged on it and she said, look, I've got a trace. I am legitimately the first Native American law professor at Harvard. And so, and Trump being Trump, you know, Pocahontas and all that stuff. And she broke the cardinal rule with Donald Trump. You never, ever, ever get into a slogging mass in a wrestling ring with him. He's been in a wrestling ring. So if you're a never Trumper or you're Elizabeth Warren and you want to go tit for tat with Donald Trump, he doesn't care. You can call him anything in the world. He doesn't care. He's been called worse, but he can call you stuff and you will get mad and go down to that, you know, rolling level and you're not going to win. And he knew that. Yeah. 
And he, yeah. he just he destroyed her to this day. She's never been the same. She's yeah, traumatized. So- Psychologically, she's traumatized. He can't even mention his name. <laughs> Hillary can't mention Trump's name because they all started it with him and he finished it. And he doesn't care. If you yeah. said to Donald Trump, hey, Trump, you're an SOB, you blah, blah, blah. He said, ah, I don't care. <laughs> He'd go right back at you. <laughs> That's why the base likes Trump, because they say, you know what? No more Marcus of Queensbury rules. No more John McCain, polite Mitt Romney. You started it. Donald Trump is our pit bull. We cut the leash. We pointed him into the right direction. And yes, there's going to be some collateral biting, but he'll more or less get beyond target. And that's that's the essence of Donald Trump for the base. Um, and to get back to the point, um, so Barack Obama was not a racial healer. No, um, but he was more moderate than Joe Biden has been. Is hasn't he? Was well, he? He's ten times smarter than Joe Biden. He's a hundred times better, more charismatic. He's a thousand times reading the pro- teleprompter better, and he's. 20,000 times more vigorous. And as he said about Joe Biden, whom he picked for respectability, said, don't ever underestimate the ability of Joe Biden to F things up. And so, (laughs) yes, he was in control and he understood that after he got that shellacking in 2010, that he had to act like he was a moderate. He would never get reelected. He was willing to do anything. Think what he did. He was more dangerous than Joe Biden. Yes, he was more moderate, but I mean, he cut a deal with Putin. Tell Vladimir, give me some space. And then things on missile defense, I'll be more flexible. But this is my last election, i.e. I'll give up the security interest of the United States and Eastern Europe and get rid of missile defense if he doesn't go into Ukraine until I'm elected. And they all won. And remember what he also did. You know, he was up for re-election. He's sick. Lois Lerner on all the so-called nonprofit conservative groups that were organizing for the election. He got them all decertified or never certified at all. He's terrified the AP reporters. They were leaking like they all do, and they they got surveilled. And so he acted like he was very moderate. He got reelected, and then he got back to himself for about a year. And his remember what his he couldn't open his mouth without insulting somebody. And it was usually the code was a white male of the working class whom he despised. These were the deplorables of Hillary, but he started, remember that he's the architect Hillary. When she said irredeemables and deplorables. And when McCain said crazies and when Biden said chumps and dregs, they were just taking their cue from Barack's clingers, the stupid people who were white, and clung to their guns and religion and were not able to appreciate the singular genius and brilliance of Barack Hussein Obama. He started it. And so, yeah, he was, but what the most brilliant contribution was somewhere around 2000, I don't know, 15, after the Iran deal and all that, he got into a room. I'm just telling you my impression. He thought, you know, people don't like me. And I alienate people, not because of my race, it's because I'm arrogant and obnoxious. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go play golf for a year and I'm going to be not seen and not heard. The more you don't see me, the more you don't hear me. You like the idea that the first African-American president, I look pretty good in the picture if you don't have to hear me and don't have to see me in action. So I'm not going to be around and I'm going to turn over the new spotlight to Donald Trump, who will be in your face and Hillary Clinton, who you despise. And they're going to drive up my 
ratings in comparison. And we didn't see them from, I don't know, we didn't see them the entire year of 2016. And guess what? When the election was over, he retired. First thing he did is he, by himself, he left the kids and Michelle and he jetted over to Tahiti to that yacht with David Geffen or whoever they were. And he was back in his Malou, his celebrity, you know, wealthy person, Malou. And then he signed Netflix and he was off to use that term again. He was off to the races to be a multi, multi millionaire, Colorama mansion, Martha Vineyard, building this huge mansion in Hawaii, violating local environmental codes about his retaining. That's Obama. Or, you know, climate change, we're all going to die, we're going to be flooded, but I'm going to build up, I want a place right on the coast. So yeah, and it worked. He was very popular. When he left office, he had like 53, 54%. It was amazing. Not since Bill Clinton and Reagan had we'd seen something like that. Because he understood that if you don't see him and you don't hear him, you like the idea that you elected the first African-American. Yeah. Well, Victor, thank you for that. Let's have another word from our sponsor. And when we come back, I'll give you another topic to talk about Joe Biden, the nice guy. But let's hear from our sponsors first. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back. I would like to remind everybody that Victor has a website, victorhanson.com. That's H-A-N-S-O-N.com. And you can find everything that all the work that he does there for American Greatness, these podcasts, and then he has ultra content. And if you choose to read the ultra content, you can sign on as a paid subscriber. It's only five dollars a month or $50 a year. So we welcome everybody to come to Victor's website. And he's also available on the various social media pages. He has a Facebook page, Twitter, Gitter, and MeWe, and we're starting an Instagram as well. And now back to the topic Biden, the nice guy. So we have that image of him, at least by the left wing media. And I guess they're the mainstream media right now. What is your impression of Joe Biden? Not such the nice guy. Old Joe Biden from Scranton is old Joe Biden today. We think that he's non-compos mentis. He is. But doesn't mean that all of a sudden old Joe Biden from Scranton we all love is now sadly in decline in his dot age. No, he was always obnoxious SOB. He was always a liar and a fake. Remember that in the Senate, he had two mentors, Robert Byrd and James O. Eastland, and they were the Dixiecrat 
hardcore. Bird was in the Klan. Eason was a segregation person. He even bragged to people in the Senate that George Wallace thought favorably of Joe Biden. He told people later, remember that, hey, Delaware was a slave state. I, you know, I'm not liberal. I'm in that tradition. When he ran for president, remember 1988, he plagiarized Neil Kinnock's speech. And it wasn't just that, by the way, now that I'm thinking of it. He plagiarized parts from JFK, from Robert Kennedy, from Hubert Humphrey. Is there anybody he didn't plagiarize? And then he started talking, what really sunk him, he started lying, as he usually does, about his law school, his great law school record top near the top. That was all a lie. And they caught him on it, and he had to bow out. And then we have at this period, shortly after, we have Tara Reid, who was sexually assaulted. We know that was probably true because her mother was on a radio station and called in and said her daughter worked for a prominent senator and had been sexually assaulted. And she asked what to do in a call in advice. Same time. And Tara Reid was, remember Senator Hirono, women must be believed. Well, they didn't believe Tara Reid. And she had more legitimate claims. And then we go into the, I don't know what we call it, Sammy. Put it this way if you saw me, on YouTube. And every time I saw a girl between 12 and 18, I wanted to go hug her and blow in her hair and get talking to her ear. I think, I should, I think Ew. I should be, yes, I think I should be jailed <laughs> because that is a predatory sex act against a small defenseless girl. And then it was older women. Everybody knew that you don't hug the guy. Okay. So he did all that stuff and he still got a pass. And then he destroyed Robert Burke. And he stored Clarence Thomas in very personal, vindictive ways. And then we, as we mature, he ran again. And he had another dismal campaign. And what did he say? He got into his real Joe Biden. And he said that Barack Obama, forget Shirley Chisholm, who was brilliant, or Barbara Jordan, who ran for president for a while, as I remember. He said, I'm the, uh, Barack's the first articulate clean black. What does that mean? Clean black. Does that mean that Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton wore sweaty track suits or what? I don't know. And then he said, you know, you can't go into a donut shop and not see a lot of it. Okay. And then there was a corn pop saga. I got six foot of chain. He cut me and I went out there and I told corn pop, come on, man. And then he said, all these African-American kids looked at my golden legs and my golden hair and they touched them creepy. And then I took that kid who insulted my sister and I slammed his head on a donut shop. Oh, by the way, if I had seen Donald Trump, I would have taken him behind the gym and beat the crap. He said that twice. And then he got to, you know, the thing about put you all in change, people forget that crowd was a very distinguished group of African-American professionals. And he talked down to them and said, they're going to put you all in chain. Mitt Romney, Mr. Never Trumper, put them all in chains. And then he's president now. So they all tell Joe Biden, don't be Joe Biden, you're president. And what's he do? He says to a very accomplished person in his administration, I have a boy down here, a boy, African-American. And then he talks about Satchel Paige, this Negro. Somebody said Negro on the right. That's a word that's almost equivalent to the N-word now in the black community. He said that. So he's obsessed with race. He's obsessed with I don't know what to say about gender. And he's not a very nice person. When he had the tragic accident with his wife, who perished, I think their young daughter, that truck driver tried to avoid that wreck. And he did heroic efforts. And he was not drunk. And he went around the country for about a decade and said, oh, my poor wife. 
the truck driver drank his lunch and and that person died very unhappy and depressed and their family begged him begged him to stop that and they finally did but it took them years to do it and only under pressure from people and there was a lot of good reviews articles about this in national review and then finally we come to biden inc biden inc as soon as that guy got into a position of real leverage, I mean, forget that he was always a chiseler, but when he got real leverage as vice president, he unleashed Hunter Biden on us. The big guy, remember that? Joe Biden became suddenly transmogrified into Mr. 10%. And Hunter, according to the laptops, was basically paying some of his bills. And Joe Biden, remember, he turned the FBI into his private family retrieval service. They took the laptop. They kept it under ice during the election. Then uh, James O'Keefe somehow got his hands on the diary, and there were some embarrassing passages by his daughter. So the FBI went after him. And I could go on, but my God, $30 million, Peter Schweitzer thinks that Biden Inc. got from Ukraine and China. Why was Hunter Biden on Air Force Two? I could go on and on. No, he was not a nice guy. He was not an honest person. He was not a healer. He had a hang up with race, something about him. He bragged about he was tough on the predators of the 70s, and his mother was endangered by black criminals. It's every possible button you could push to show you were going to incite racial, he pushed, but he was left wing and he was moderate and his hour came in 2020 because they put, I don't know, 15 candidates and America got a good look and they said to themselves, Beto is nuts. That guy is totally insane. And then they looked at Mayor Pete and they said, this guy is the most drippy, sanctimonious, egotistical, scold, He's obnoxious. And they looked at Julian Castro and said, this guy is, he's back in the Cesar Chavez movement. He had to learn Spanish. And then they looked at Elizabeth Warren. They said, oh, my God, it's like going into the library and having the librarian follow you around and saying you tracked in mud. And she's the biggest scold. And then they looked at Bernie and they said, this guy takes it serious. He is really a commie. He's an old commie. We haven't seen an old commie like this in years. He can hardly walk now. He's had a heart. He's a commie and he'll ruin the party. And they looked at Cory Booker and they said, Spartacus, he didn't even watch the movie right. He doesn't know what he's talking about. We're Saul Spartacus. What the hell is he talking about? He's nuts. And then they looked at Kamala Harris and they thought, wait a minute, where did this woman come from? Willie Brown's ex-girlfriend, and she's, God, she doesn't know, she didn't win one delegate. And so they said, oh my God, we're going to get Trump elected. Let's go resurrect good old Joe Biden, who looked like he was insane, or I don't want to be mean, but he didn't know where he was in the debates. Suddenly in the South Carolina, Nevada, the African-American community, to their credit, stepped up and said, that guy, that guy is our ticket to power. And we're going to tell the BLM and the Antifa felt in the aftermath of George Floyd as the summer wore on, we're going to get behind him. I mean, he was nominated right after George Floyd in 2020. But my point is that the African-American community told the hard left, we're not on board with you. We don't want the AOC agenda. And they got behind Joe Biden, but they made a Faustian bargain with him, Sammy. They said, you carry us across the finishing line and then you go blabber on all you want, but you're going to do what we want. Critical race theory stuff, open borders stuff, 
big spending stuff, defund the police stuff, Soros stuff. And that's where we are. No, not a nice guy. Very pernicious, mean-spirited person. No, but you can see why Hunter Biden thinks he's going to get a pass on everything, too, because Joe's been given a pass on so many. (laughs) Thanks. He's pretty smarter, smarter than you and I. He got a pass on everything. I mean, if you were if you were somebody, the handler, and you said to Joe Biden, look, I know every family had Donald Nixon. We had. The Clinton brother that Roger Clinton that was always in mistake. We had the I don't know Billy Billy Carter. Billy, Billy Carter. Carter. We had the the Obama progeny that were always popping up. You know, okay, we understand that, but we just have a few rules. Joe, make sure your son does not do the following: a leave a crack pipe in a rented car. That's all we ask, and then do not take selfies with a prostitute in a hotel room. And don't lose, you can lose one laptop with confidential business, but not two and not three laptops. And make sure your daughter doesn't write intimate details about your family and forget to leave her diary when she moves out. That's that. And then tell Hunter not to get on a plane and leverage foreign countries. Is that too much to ask? (laughs) Well, Hunter has done one thing for us. He's open to all the public to see the inner workings of the very seedy world. (laughs) You know, I I wrote, I actually wrote a column on this and I think it stood up pretty well. I said, Hunter has a sick relationship. If you read those emails and I read all that are available, he's angry at Joe Biden, Mr. 10%, the big guy, because he didn't give Hunter appreciation for being the bag man. And Hunter got all the downside, but Biden got all a lot of the money. And, and so Hunter's complaining, I had to support this family. When people came to me, I, not the big guy, I paid for stuff. And what he's doing is doing, okay, <laughs> we'll see how they like little Hunter Biden now that Joe Biden is quote unquote pure and president. So maybe I just kind of maybe will go into art now. Yeah. Hunter, I'm make sur- sure we're going to give you a pause, Hunter, but be sure you're now that your dad's president, you have to behave. Yes. Okay. I'll be an artist. I'll throw a bunch of stuff on a canvas and I'll get an anonymous uh, buyer deal and I'll get a bunch of wealthy Chinese to pay me a ton of money and I'll get a girl pregnant and I'm just going to be Hunter Biden. How do you like that for what you've done to me? Make fun of your bag, man. So I'm going to get, and I think he's getting back at them in a very subtle way, not too subtle, but back at them. Yeah. I'm starting to believe that theory of yours. So Victor, we've got to call this to a close here. And thank you so much for all of your historical wisdom on World War II. I know that that book is just fascinating. Everybody should read The Second World Wars with an S. And we would like to thank you, Victor. Thank you. And I got off topic. Somehow we went from Sherman tanks to Hunter Biden's crack pipe. But maybe that's, <laughs> maybe maybe you guys out there can find the connection. I think there's a connection that we live in a very exciting world. But I'll leave it to you guys to make yeah. the connection. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank and this is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hansen. We're signing off. <laughs>